0: Welcome to a new episode of University College Utrecht Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zuitzelund. I'm one of the lecturers and one of the tutors at UCU. And I'm here today with Bill Hale. Um, Bill, thank you so much for your time. Could you maybe shortly introduce yourself?
1: Sure, Uh, I'm Bill Hale. I'm one of the um, associate professors uh, at the Department of Pedagogics that's teaching at the University of Utrecht. the UCU, excuse me. <laughs> um, I've just started actually last year and that was an interesting time to start up with such an on-campus approach but having to be online during the corona lockdown. Uh, I'm teaching at UCU developmental psychology and I'm also the fellow of psychology.
0: And yeah. what, what does a fellow do exactly?
1: Well, that's interesting because um, it seems to me that that's um, a jack of all trades this is the way I've translated it into English for myself. Um, and it really comes down to the track. So I've been talking uh, and discussing the aspect with not only my cluster head as in the educational director, but also with fellow, um, um, uh, fellow fellows. <laughs> I just yes. realized how interesting <laughs> the sentence that is. And, um, I'm beginning input. Now, I've been focusing primarily on various aspects of the thesis and how the thesis can be approached, and also not only because it was online, but in general, how um, it can be approached in psychology, because there's an awful lot of interested parties that would like to uh, do a thesis in psychology at ECU. Um But also, people have questions about what they can do later on in psychology here in the Netherlands, and that I can fortunately answer, because many times when people ask about that, they don't mean it in a very broad sense, but they mean it more in a very narrow clinical sense. And I happen to be what they call in the Netherlands a health psychologist. Yeah. Um, So in Dutch, it's called a (laughs) gesundheitspsychologe. Okay. I can say that, yay. (laughs) Most of my clients in the past have been uh, spoken English, albeit I was taught and my initial clientele was always in the Dutch language. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I'm able to help advise people that are interested in how to go into the clinical practice um, that are interested in doing so after their time at UCU.
0: Okay. Um, and I think people can tell from your accent indeed that you're not originally from the Netherlands. You're from the US, right?
1: Correct. correct. And you
0: attended a, a high school there and also a, a bachelor's degree that was a little bit more liberal arts and science the way that UCU would be. Is that correct?
1: Very much. Very much so. So I was almost born. I was born in New Jersey, but I was pretty much born in Brighton, Boston, Boston, mm-hmm. uh, Massachusetts. And um, and I attended a, um, a private high school um, uh, uh, called Buckingham Brown Nichols, uh, which was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very much in the liberal arts tradition, having even teachers from Harvard College uh, teaching at times at our high school as well as um, teaching at Harvard. Um, so it was very steeped in the liberal arts thought, tradition, and approach uh, to education. And I attended two years of Boston University uh, before I came to the Netherlands as an exchange student at the University of Utrecht. It's quite a long story, but to keep it very short, I stayed in the Netherlands and I continued on to get what they called back then the Doktorandes, which is nowadays considered a master's, Mm -hmm. and then went on to get my PhD and I've settled basically here in Holland. So I've lived here actually, strangely enough, most of my life, but I've never lost my accent.
0: <laughs> That's always one of the hardest things to to change. This uh, is true. Right. I've
1: found for myself, which certainly is true.
0: <laughs> and, and why did you decide to stay in the Netherlands? Because what was your experience like coming from um, an American university and the US to the Netherlands? What was that like as an exchange? student? <sighs>
1: It was quite interesting. Now I came here very directed for a non-academic purpose. My, I had met uh, um, my, who was my girlfriend at the time, um, when she was an exchange student with high school, um, when in Boston, and I followed her back here later on to mm-hmm. to spend a year in the Netherlands, see how that would work out. And that worked out very, very well. We're married and we have children together. So that was very, very (laughs) (laughs) wonderful feeling on my part. Um, And, um, but the educational system was so much different in the sense that, albeit with the exchange program, they allowed us to follow it in different uh, departments Mm -hmm. and different uh, faculties uh, that was encouraged. And the faculties were very open to us, uh, international students, to follow generally private classes in English um, from various departments, various faculties. However, when I switched over to staying in the Netherlands in the program, then you notice that everything was streamlined towards. the, yeah, the subject of your study. In this case, I studied psychology. So it was kind of strange for me just to have classes from day in and day out in psychology. I found it incredibly refreshing on one side, but also it was not part of my thought process at the time. I didn't think of it that way. I thought that would be more for a master's program and not at a bachelor level. Yeah. but like yeah. anything else, I think you start getting used to it. And as I, after my PhD, I rolled into other jobs at the university and primarily teaching in addition to my research responsibilities. And you kind of start thinking along the lines, oh, this makes most sense. Coming back to UCU, I think, wait a second, actually the liberal arts makes most sense at the bachelor level, I feel, <laughs> but it's just my own instinctual gut feelings. <laughs>
0: When you were in the U.S., what did you combine psychology with at your
1: university? Well, um, uh, when I was at Boston University, actually I was studying um, 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 uh, multimedia, uh, I guess you'd call it. So film, journalism, uh, all types of uh, aspects of the, the media. Yeah. Um And it was combined with courses I'd have in, I'd have a course in philosophy, for example. I'd have a course in, uh, I believe, German. I had a course in, in, um, I think it was in European history, in addition to the courses that I had uh, uh, at the Department of um, uh, Media at Boston University. Um, So you would have your courses of what, we'd call our major. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were the ones obviously that m- most people talked about when you talked to fellow students, but of course you had your other courses as well in order to have more of that, uh, yeah, to have a broader, uh, knowledge base and just simply, um, just in your major.
0: And has that shaped how you view psychology? Has that had an impact on how you approach it, or?
1: Well, I think so to a certain degree. Um, I'll give you an example. This came actually more from my high school than it came from college. Uh, I learned quite extensively evolutionary theory, yeah. In addition to um, uh, creationism at my high school, that was part of the entire program. Yeah. When I went from uh, when I finished my master's here in the Netherlands, and I was fortunate to be selected as a PhD candidate for a program I was following at the uh, Department of Biological Psychiatry in Groningen. Mm-hmm. And it was focused very much on evolutionary principles of the behavior of individuals, um, what's called human uh, Yeah. So it's development of how behaviors over time have mm-hmm. Uh, within an evolutionary uh, perspective. Yeah. I was asked about that, and I discussed uh, my knowledge of evolution theory as I'd learned it before, and um, that helped actually probably get me my job because people were so impressed that I had not followed biology Mm -hmm. as a master's, a bachelor master's program in the Netherlands, and yet I'd already learned it in context of, yeah, not historical background, uh, a scientific biological background, um, cultural how it's affected culture because you learn a lot of uh, aspects of scientific uh, um, lines. I guess is the best way of putting it mm-hmm. um, in various lights. So you don't just simply say this is it. Yeah. Uh, it's it's in different contexts that uh, it's discussed.
0: Yeah. And um because your topic, both already in your master and in your PhD, is basically depression. And then what influences that and how it manifests itself and why depression? Is there a particular reason why that's a topic you're interested in?
1: Yeah, um it's always <laughs> that's an excellent question. I'm never quite <laughs> sure how to answer it because I don't get depressed by studying depression. <laughs> um when I was, um, um, studying in the Netherlands at one point, um, and I'm it's not as much anymore, but it used to be that you'd have to kind of determine what, uh, um, specialization you would make in clinical psychology. Yeah. And one of the specializations was internalizing problems, which is anxiety okay. and primarily depression, mm-hmm. um, Another one would be externalizing problems, such as behavioral problems, or another one would be schizophrenia, and so on. Um, and and in Utrecht, they had an excellent... So I was kind of attracted to it for two reasons. One, because of the teaching staff. People yeah. like Martin Van Son, um, 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 and others were just fantastic teachers, um, really could bring the material over so well in my bachelor's phase of the program that I wanted to continue following their teaching program later on. And they were specialized in internalizing some problems. And uh, that shaped me to follow that program and then ultimately do my PhD in depression. However, um, over time, of course, you can evolve in your uh, specialization Mm -hmm. and what I found actually is I evolved not so much in terms of the pathology, but in terms of the manifestations. Okay. So I was focused as a clinical psychologist really on adults. Mm-hmm. That's um, uh, really there was a line between developmentalists on one side and clinical psychology on the other. Yeah. Uh, I'd followed many developmental courses, but I ultimately graduated in clinical psychology mm-hmm. However, during my study and also during my training as a therapist, as a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, I found myself attracted more and more to the stories of patients and them discussing their problems occurring during their adolescence. Mm -hmm. And it seemed as though there was some sort of um, tipping point, as it were, a lot of times when people in their adult ages had problems with, say, depression that occurred very much during their adolescence. And that made me um, kind of curious. So I would look into the literature. And so, but surely when I had opportunities, I would try to treat adolescent patients. And there was a whole different world. It was so much more in uh, development. And um, uh, it would develop so much more differently than the kind of the crystallized uh, experience that I noticed more often in adults, yeah. it was so much in flux that really fascinated me. And um, and basically I m- moved then from teaching and uh, uh, working at departments of clinical psychology mm-hmm. to the department I work at now, which is pedagogic sciences, (pedagogiek in Dutch, um, uh, because it focused so much on the development of adolescence. And then for me, the adolescent development of um, depressive feelings. So I don't really study clinical uh, depression at the moment as much as I study it in um, uh, how it occurs more as a normal aspect of yeah. the development of phases. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Because if you, you look at your PhD research, if you look back at it now, your PhD was, uh, was basically in biological psychiatry. So again, you indeed have the right. biology element that you mentioned. And then you looked at nonverbal behaviors and depression, uh, and in particular, how it manifests itself with partners and strangers for people who have depression. If you look back on your findings back then, mm-hmm. has, that, has your insight, have your insights changed over the last, no, 20 years? I don't know how long ago. I,
1: uh, y- um, y- hmm. I guess not so much in terms of the findings of the studies I did during my PhD because they were mm-hmm. so focused on primary behaviors, behaviors in terms of um, invitation behaviors versus yeah. uh, behaviors that are kind of um, uh, rejecting. Uh, to keep it in a very simple form. I suppose my nuances have gotten better over time. Um, but I think the broad line of the nonverbal behaviors stay primarily the same. And I had found actually in a follow-up study that I did maybe about 10 years ago at our um, outpatient clinic mm-hmm. here at the University of Utrecht which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but it had for many years. And at the outpatient clinic, uh, we did a replication study of therapists with uh, clients that had internalizing problems, adolescents with either depressive or anxiety symptomology. And we found very similar findings as we found also with uh, clinically depressed adults.
0: And and what were those findings?
1: Well, the same thing that basically a lot... um, and this is, of course, very. you have to always generalize because it almost seems as though there's a a silver bullet, and this is certainly not the case. But in general, individuals um, that will do well tend to engage in more um, eye contact and nonverbal hand and body movements yeah. Uh, that seem to be more inviting a conversation. Yeah. Uh, and therapists uh, tend to react unconsciously or pre-consciously. It depends on how you want to put it into context, but with a, a very much a knee-jerk reaction, uh, very much of uh, um, following along uh, with that. And that seems to be uh, connected towards... Progressively getting better um, uh, therapeutically, so it has nothing really to do with the content of the therapy. It has a lot to do with what the we call the non-specific factors of the therapy, because yeah. it's been very well known in clinical psychology for years that um, while obviously the content of therapy is crucial have, mm-hmm. for therapeutic change, that there is underlying non-specific factors. That seemingly play a strong role. One of those is having a good match, say, with your therapist. But that match process tends to be only measured by I feel this way. And the other person says, I feel this way too. And it would appear as though that matching actually occurs more on a nonverbal level than people recognize uh, when they simply feel that there's a good click between themselves and another.
0: Yeah. Just to make sure I, f- I fully grasp it, because I'm not 100% sure I understood it. Um, so people who are uh, young adults who are depressed, often their body language is such that it's not really open to connecting with others.
1: Correct. That's it's very of- closed off yeah. and withdrawn Yeah. is maybe the best way of putting it. Yes.
0: And then, of course, in therapy, I can imagine that gets in the way of establishing a relationship between therapists and clients
1: absolutely yes yes so that's exactly it so in the therapeutic relationship if people are so closed off it's hard to know if the information is coming through and if so if it's coming through in a fashion that the other person the the client understands uh, what is exactly being said Um, and if that fits also with the behavioral repertoire of the client him or herself because asking somebody to do something that they normally wouldn't do even when they were feeling good about things is over asking. There's not one type of behavior that fits all individuals. And as people open up and they're more inviting uh, um, in discussion, that seems to be um, something that is reciprocal and has kind of builds off one another. So therapists... Uh, sees that, and then unconsciously kind of reinforces that behavior, yeah. which seems to also help the conversation and the um, yeah uh, the information that's being passed on from therapist to a client.
0: Yeah, because how because you've worked as a therapist yourself as well. Yes, I do. Um, how do you approach that as a therapist if you're sitting in a room and you've got someone in front of you who wants help, likely, at least I'm assuming that's why they've come to you. But you can also tell from their body language that there's a little bit of a wall around them. How do you approach that as a therapist to sort of get that wall to come down?
1: Wow. Um, Yeah. Um, I think... The thing is, is I went into and maybe there is one thing I said. um, Some of the nuance have changed from when I started my PhD to where I am now. (laughs) Is I initially thought if I had insight into how certain behaviors would elicit other behaviors in an individual, that it would be um, simple enough to discuss and simple enough to behave in that fashion. So would one would elicit the other and clearly that's possible because if you see actors, they're yeah. able to do a scene again and again in a play or so on and so forth. But if one's not really trained classically, I think, in terms of truly being so self-aware of uh, their nonverbal behaviors, yeah. I think what happens is that you can recognize what you are doing in terms of saying, oh, if I if I look more directly at the person, yeah. if I keep my Uh, say, my body position is very open as opposed to very closed and very uh, um, withdrawn. If if I try to be more inviting and matching the tempo of the discussion level of the person. yeah, Sure, but it, it, it happens very naturally. And both directions, I have to be totally honest about, that if somebody's very closed off and withdrawn, it's easy not to um mirror the behaviors of another yeah not and again as i said if it's unconscious or Mm pre-conscious there's discussion points but it certainly happens automatically almost
0: yeah
1: and you can recognize it but it, it just kind of slips out of your thinking range when you're focused on things such as um explaining what the uh, technique is in the behavior, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy very much focuses on things one can do yeah. on a daily basis. And if you're thinking <laughs> about conveying the information, you forget what you're doing non-verbally.
0: Yeah. And then of course that elicits what you're doing as a therapist also elicits a response in the client. I mean, it's vice versa.
1: Exactly. So I think when I'm the best way of thinking about it is, When I'm doing these studies, a lot of times I realize it's more um, uh, uh, fundamental research because trying to apply it, and I've never done something like that in experimental design of application of changing certain behaviors to see how that would affect things. There have been studies like that, but they've been very um, uh, kind of artificial. And if you let it go to be very naturalistic, you get something like um, uh, the Stanford study of the prisoners versus um, uh, guards. And that, as you know, is generally a study in ethics. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that would be allowed anymore.
1: uh, No, no not to that that degree. not. Not at all. And yet, that was a very, not a forced element at all. That occurred very naturalistically. Yeah with very little prodding whatsoever. Uh, so do you understand what I mean? So obviously you can't do that. And if it becomes artificial, it yeah. becomes very artificial quickly. So yeah. it's an interesting field, I think. Um, but I do it more fundamentally to see, is it actually out there? And then the second question is, is how do we apply it? And that, yeah. tricky. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. Yeah, asking people to behave in a way that doesn't feel natural to them, that's complicated.
1: And it's complicated. It's complicated in and of itself, when you're asking people in general therapy to say, okay, so you find it difficult, say somebody um, is scared of dogs, and you want to do exposure therapy, and you're yeah. gradually having somebody expose themselves, that in and of itself is quite unnatural. And yet, it's very effective.
0: Yeah. Yeah, doing you something want to go to the
1: second level. more
0: often makes it more natural. Of course, the whole mm-hmm. fake it till you make it.
1: Uh, well, different. see, there, <laughs> it's not for nothing that's a phrase. <laughs> uh, it is true. Slowly, materially, it becomes part of your own behavioral repertoire, and you mm-hmm. go, oh, okay, maybe it wasn't such a big deal after all, and and so that natural things become can be part of your new behavioral repertoire.
0: Yeah,
1: but then to go the extra mile to say. Oh, yeah. what you don't say and yet you do say by acting,
0: yeah.
1: And then trying to make that part of your baby Hill repertoire, that's not as simple as as I thought it was going to be. I yeah. thought it was going to be a piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no.
0: yeah. <laughs> Stuff that looks really easy can be surprisingly difficult. Turns out. Uh...
1: Turns out, yeah.
0: Because you mentioned indeed that uh, your own field is cognitive behavioral therapy.
1: In terms of, for my as a therapist, that's where I focus on. As a yes. What exactly?
0: I'm sorry. What exactly is that? And then we'll go into your research uh, after.
1: Sure. Um, So cognitive behavioral therapy is the idea of, and this is the way I explain it to my clients: is uh, what you think Mm -hmm. and. How you feel about a certain situation is obviously going to affect your behaviors. Now, the thing is, is with our behaviors, we can look at it a lot of times as either approaching behaviors or withdrawal behaviors. And those behaviors are reinforced by ourselves. We simply feel better when we do something. Now, if we get to remove ourselves from something we find stressful or uncomfortable, we're going to feel better in the short term. The long term, however, it might actually affect our uh, living environment because we have to keep narrowing our scope of the, of the world and what we can approach in order to avoid what we think is stressing. Yeah. Um, and then the thing and the idea is saying, okay, we're going to try to get you out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. by looking at what you think about it, how you feel about it, and trying techniques that are focused on your thinking and your behavior yeah in order to first be uncomfortable but to see that uncomfortable feeling over time mm-hmm. keeps diminishing yeah and through the diminishing of the feeling that you can take on and create new behaviors that will enlarge your world and yeah. um yeah make it uh, a place that you more enjoy to be in
0: yeah And how does it, uh, because you mentioned, of course, you're a researcher as well. Mm -hmm. And how is, uh, is there a link between your work as a therapist and as a researcher?
1: Not all that direct. It's it's linked most directly purely through things that strike me. Mm -hmm. And the things that strike me in therapy, I say, hey, how is that, how can I find that in research? Now, as I said, one of the first things was is in dealing with uh, clinically depressed adults that mm-hmm. I kept hearing about the adolescents, yeah, and through that led me to wanting to study more in research and ultimately as therapy, as a therapist, to have more clients that were adolescents in addition to my adult population. Yeah, um, so it's basically it gets me to be curious. Yeah, and through my curiosity, then I start. Uh, looking through the literature. And sometimes just by exploring the scientific literature, I say, hey, here's some insights that are not maybe so uh, cognitive behavioral therapy type of techniques and yet are valuable insights. Yeah. example would be maybe Rogerian. uh, um, So Carl Rogers, and it's a a field of uh, uh, psychotherapy, had the idea of really trying to engage um, uh, with clients um, in a very congruent manner, and a very, uh, to show you a a realness to the contact. And how important I found that to be to um, people that were anxious, socially phobic uh, 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 patients. Um, And so that was the kind of insights that I drew from the literature, but sometimes I'll come across things well, say in terms of the nonverbal uh, behaviors, I say, hey, I wonder if that uh, is this unique to an adult or is that something that's more that occurs development over time? And I think viewing and that's the biggest thing that changed to me is I used to view things much more statically because clinical psychology, historically speaking, yeah, yeah. Certainly not the intent, but just growth tend to be more static saying, well, this is how it occurs in adults uh, because of the tradition of coming out of psychiatry, which is health is the absence of illness, was yeah. a yeah. older thought and approach to uh, the field and clinical psychology latched on to Hey, everything's fine until it's problematic. Yeah. And then there's something that's almost, uh, um, as though it's a mechanism. This is yeah. a mechanism not working. Looking at it in the light of um, adolescence automatically uh, forced me to think on developmental trajectories yeah. and what are normal behaviors that simply become problematic by the length and the duration, the duration and the yeah. intensity of the problems. More than is this an issue? Because that's part of life.
0: Yeah, I have and to tell life. My-
1: you come across stuff and it's good.
0: Yeah. I have that conversation a lot with uh, first year students at UCU.
1: Okay.
0: Because I think your first year at university is probably one of your most eventful years in your life because everything is changing. You're moving house. I mean, there's a lot of like stressful factors, you know, that's in the top five of stressful factors, but they all happen in that year. Um, You're moving to another town, sometimes even another country. Uh, You're moving away from your parents and becoming independent for the first time. Your support system in terms of your friends and family are changing. Some of your friends from high school will no longer be friends. Sometimes that friendship is changing in nature. Plus you're sort of changing jobs because where you used to be a high school student and for UCU students often a big fish in a small pond and then now they're at university and, and that's not the case anymore. So indeed, one of the conversations I often have with them in the first year, like it's normal that you're gonna feel overwhelmed and out of place and anxious and nervous, and that's a perfectly normal response yeah. to the situation. So don't think you're failing if you are not immediately happy or comfortable or or anything like that, because it is, yeah, that that's a healthy response, I would say, to a transition. Oh
1: yeah. Oh, very much so. And I'm totally, uh, I can, I'm very supportive of that position that you take because that's absolutely the case. And and I think it's also important too. And that's what I do like the idea of if you look at things in a developmental light, is that even ourselves, by imparting that information, we can look back on it. How was that for ourselves when we were going through the experience? And I know that I, kind of double dipped by going first. Well, I it wasn't as stressful going to Boston University because it wasn't that far from home, but moving to the Netherlands suddenly really increased things and I'm terrible in languages. Um, so that I was suddenly in a country where back then Utrecht was not as um, English oriented as mm-hmm. it maybe is now. And I can just tell you that made me feel like a very very small fish in the huge sea. Yeah, <laughs> I had my Nemo moment there.
0: <laughs> oh, that's a lovely one—a Nemo moment, indeed. Yeah, it's <laughs> a good way of saying it. Yeah, because um, yeah, one of because this is something obviously the tutors talk a lot about between themselves as well. Mm -hmm. One of the things, or one of the impressions I sometimes get is that the conversation about mental health among students has changed in the last, say, 14 years. Mm. And that often now, when students talk about mental health, they would only consider it to be mentally healthy if it's a situation in which they feel comfortable and satisfied and maybe happy or however you would phrase it. Um, And if that's not the case, then there's something wrong. Which I always find a difficult one because it's, yeah, like I said before, I mean, like you were describing as well, some of it is just a healthy response to changing life circumstances. Have you well, seen that yourself in your work that there's been a change? It might just be my completely biased impression. So,
1: oh, yeah, no, no, no. And well, if, that I can't speak to, but I can speak to the fact that it's definitely discussed an awful lot, and not just since necessarily ECU, very much at the university as well. And in answering this, this is kind of the reason why I like the idea of um, viewing things in the liberal arts perspective than simply a, um, uh, a one study perspective, if I can put it that way, in a specialization perspective. And that being that what I personally know is, but this is within the Dutch culture, huh? so this isn't maybe going to speak to UCA as well, uh, as maybe uh, what I've noticed in general in Dutch culture, and or at least for sure the Dutch university system. When I was a student, I would say, um, and I'd be among other students that most times, fortunately, spoke English with yeah. me while I was struggling to learn Dutch, but I could easily say something that I found very common, saying, I feel depressed.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, I'm depressed today. No, thanks. I'm just going to... I'm just going to base. I mean, nowadays, I guess you say, oh, I'm just going to curl up in front of the television and uh, watch Netflix. Yeah. Um, but at the time when I said it, it really concerned my, my new Dutch friends. And they said, are you, is this is really something occurs more often? I said, well, I don't know. Guess maybe, yeah. You know, every month or something? Well, yeah. Yeah, sure. I guess, Yeah think about it i mean it's also really terrible weather here but yeah it from England <laughs> it help. And the, and yeah, but it always affected my behavior. you know i yeah. said but it affected it there too so what well, do you think you have and it was by saying the word depression immediately mm-hmm. would nowadays we call it pathologicalizing something that yeah. people were looking to help me and fortunately my wife was able to translate into dutch yeah. he's what he's saying we just not allowed to say it. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that you feel depressed. You're not allowed to say that you feel anxious. That's a sign of weakness, almost. If I can put it yeah. that way.
0: Yeah, and it's the word particularly because if need that is one of the things that I see has changed with my current students. When I was a student, we would often say like we're down, but we wouldn't use oh. the word depressed um, because the word depression in the Netherlands immediately feels like I need clinical depression, structural.
1: Um, cool. but even when I was studying in the late 80s, early nineties, being down was uh, almost like and people would say, Well, do you know what you mean by that? And yeah. I say, Well, you mean like the alfunda? Uh oh. <laughs> and they'd say, Well, yeah. And I said, Well, duh, why do you think he wrote the book? Yeah. I mean, look around. This is not <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. maybe <laughs> this isn't some something text. like just <laughs> just happened
1: to this one guy. No, no maybe. maybe
0: for context. Uh, the Avenue from Gero Treve, it's sort of a classic book from Dutch literature. I think it was written in the second half of the 40s. Yes. And it's very much indeed about a guy living in this environment that he finds deeply sad and depressing and that that's getting to him.
1: And the idea of the world being that way. Yeah. The world truly is just within this very dark, uh, deep, depressive cloud. And that didn't strike me as unusual because of the fact i was like when people said well that's too much i was like haven't you read something like and here's a book from uh the philosopher uh satra mm-hmm. uh, the book nausea yeah. uh, which with this translation because it's a set of terrible language so i'd not read in french uh but the idea that existence is almost nauseating but non-existence however is existential, you know, uh, mind-blowing. Yeah. So, I felt that having a range of emotions was fairly normal, but it was not as a discussable point as mm-hmm. I was used to among my friends yeah. uh, back in America. So, you start going along with your friends here and go okay, and then I noticed with the younger students, you know, as I was teaching. That it was becoming more common to talk about yeah. emotions, and I was like, "Okay, they're doing a little differently than I did as a, when I was a student, but that's cool." And but even more recently, I've noticed uh, what you've said is that it seems as though unless you're happy uh, and whatever that happy actually entails, because I've found that very hard. If I ask people to define that, then it becomes very vague very quickly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, you have to be happy. Uh, otherwise, there's a problem. Yeah. And I can't remember my my son told me an acronym, and it came down to the the fear of missing out or something.
0: Oh, uh, FOMO.
1: FOMO. Yes, yeah. that totally cracked me up. <laughs> <out. laughs> I was like, I must be FOMOed all the time, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? That's why I want to research or something. I don't know. Yeah. He said, No, no, no. It doesn't mean that way. It's like you don't go to. You're gonna miss out. Uh, and going to a concert. And I'm like, oof, that must be a hard existence if you're constantly... So, yeah, because I didn't grow up with it, then I'm looking at it more as a distant conceptualization, but it has a lot to do with this expression of one's feelings. And that, I wonder if if that's kind of like a reversal of going from we can't talk about it all to letting it all hang out to such a degree that... I don't know if there's a realistic desire to be found easily yeah. within trying to try and always be happy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and what I always find hard to judge as well is to what degree is it that um, there is, for instance, more anxiety nowadays and more depression, and to what degree is it a change in terminology? That's something that I would have called I'm down, which is something like it's temporary, it's going to go away, It's part of life. Whereas depression for me sounds much heavier. Um, So maybe it's just different words that they use. It's the same. Like I have students indeed say, you know, I'm struggling with my mental health because my boyfriend broke up with me, which I was say.
1: Yeah. See, I I think there is a certain terminology issue that I don't think, uh, I think a lot of negative emotions uh, are uh, important as any positive emotions, uh, in terms of also not just personal growth, albeit that's crucial, but also in terms of social growth, um, because we're very much interpersonal um, animals or creatures or how you might put it, we're not uh, islands uh, of ourselves. And I think sometimes when people talk about their uh, uh, emotional states, and we're saying the mental health states, they almost talk about as though each and every individual is an island, which is certainly not the case. Yeah. And to experience a lot of uh, these emotions through not only personal experience, but also through literature, through media, um, such as films or music or what might be it, um, I think is really important. Important. Um, as a matter of fact, I just wrote uh, as a co-author a paper with uh, Professor Tom terbocht from the uh, General Social Sciences, I think they call it, um, as a translation, no, Interdisciplinary Social Sciences um, at the University of Utrecht on uh, rock oh. music and different yeah. types of rock music and how that affects mm-hmm. uh, one's emotions. Uh, and it's not just in terms of your personal emotions, it has a lot to do with what we did not study and yet we'd like to hopefully in the future is how it affects groups yeah, and how people even if you feel certain songs make you feel down and for yeah. me for example that would be classically the blues Yeah, that's where it came from and yeah. it certainly is not something that speaks to me historically but it does speak to me in terms of that's points, the text draws it up and yet other people uh friends of mine who also like the blues you feel a kinship and therefore a belongingness and so it's kind of you'd say wait a like one seems to preclude the other and yet they don't they're they go very much hand in hand and the human experience is that complicated so to say i have this problem therefore my mental health is problematic you know i remember breaking up with my boyfriend girlfriend instead of saying yes but this is going to be part of the human experience relationships and disappointment and positive aspects to the, you know uh, as one kitten caboodle as we said way back in the day um I think is kind of limiting one's experiences so it's It's kind of too bad
0: it's interesting as well that because you, you label it indeed positive and negative emotions. And those are labels that we ourselves or society always have a bit of a problem with the world society because it's like, who are you talking about then? Um, like whether something is positive or negative, that's a moral judgment. Whereas in itself, if you're experiencing the emotion, it's not necessarily positive or negative to me. But there's this interesting thing where... If you start involving art, whether that's literature or movies or music in particular, then it's suddenly okay to feel it. That in a way you can use that as a way to allow yourself to feel sad because you're listening to the blues or or something like that. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this, but this is just <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no, no. Well, I mean, I think it's a lot of times if you draw it up on your own, people or individuals themselves worry about ways, is that healthy? But if it's externalized, right? So it's a great piece of art. Or for example, um, uh, and I do use positive, negative, not so much as uh, meaning it in a judgmental sense, but much more in terms of a way of labeling. Uh, That's uh, generally uh, just as a shorthand, as it were. But for example, depression, most people consider that to be a negative emotion. But they're classic uh, music pieces that have been shown to elicit depressive feelings very easily. Probably because yeah. of, uh, they were written for that reason, yeah. and have been used in experimental studies to say uh, what they call uh, emotion uh, elicting experimentation. Mm-hmm. Saying, okay, when you hear this music, and then you fill in the questionnaire. As opposed to um, uh, music pieces that uh, are supposed to elicit happiness or joy, mm-hmm. um, and then in a the question about how your state of mind is, you can see that it's, it very much affects people. And but people are then okay with that because it's yeah. not for myself; it's from oh, a exactly. sort of force.
0: And then somehow it's fine, indeed. Yeah, that's yeah. Because the research you were referring to, I think it's about goth music in particular, right?
1: That's a different one. This one just got... Yeah, no, there was one we've done on goth as well, just uh, before that. This article I'm referring to, literally last week just got accepted.
0: Ah, okay, yes. Yeah, because... Fresh
1: fresh from the press.
0: There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And um, because, yeah, to to come back, because that seems like an extension then about the goth music... Um, Yeah, because what was that research about? Could you you explain where it comes from? How did you come up with that topic? Were you asked to join or is there something particular? Well, I
1: was, uh, yeah. So, uh, okay, this is kind of interesting in general. So, I think uh, maybe for UCU students, because a lot of them, uh, and I talk about this as a a tutor. So, hey, Uh, not tutor, (laughs) fellow. Yeah as a fellow about research. So uh, uh, different departments of social sciences uh, at the University of Utrecht, instead of, there are studies, smaller experimental studies, but there are a lot of times, large scale longitudinal studies that Mm -hmm. we do, such as my department. We work on a thing called radar, which is relations, I can't remember, but it's about uh, developing from young adolescence into young adulthood. Yeah. And we've been following people for now about 12 years. And we ask them a variety of uh, questions uh, or interview questions, um, either on paper, you fill it in a questionnaire, or asked verbally, uh, and sometimes short experiments. And we follow this cohort, this group, for many, many years. And students of uh, UCU um, many times help by helping to collect some of the data and then using some of the data for their own, uh, thesis, just yeah. to have an idea of research. I focus very much on questions about, uh, anxious and depressive, uh, symptomology. So feeling down or feeling, uh, somewhat anxious for a variety of different reasons, or just in terms of, you happen to be feeling that way at the time because of weather or other happenstances.
0: Yeah.
1: One of my other colleagues that worked with this design that later on left our department decided, hey, music tastes and tastes in music, I think are so crucial at that stage in life. Yeah. And basically what we have done is we've merged our lines of research within this large longitudinal study to focus on how do certain symptom symptoms say of feeling down or feeling anxious how does that relate to how people develop their sense of music taste over time
0: yeah
1: and that's basically uh how we uh um, work together in our yeah. uh study
0: and then the result of what you found indeed is that people that listen to golf music a lot, that can that can it isn't necessarily but it may be an early sensitive marker of dormant or developing depressive symptoms, basically.
1: Correct, but again, uh, those depressed symptoms uh, on an individual level are there, but a lot of times also the question is is what and that's where we have to do more experimental studies. Is we also know that. From groups that people find within groups, say yeah. other individuals that like goth music who experience that same feeling, feeling down, that they actually feel uh, positive by the group environment. Yeah. So, and that's one of where it seems like it seems strange because on an individual level, you're saying, wait a second, you feel more down, as it mm-hmm. were, pushing down, because depression is literally emotions being pushed down as opposed to elation that occurs very much in the group uh uh, sense so how does one play up another now i can just think and still feel that way is thinking yeah well as a person sometimes i want to i I, i'm feeling that way and it's kind of nice to know that i'm not alone in the feelings i think that's maybe one of the best ways of putting it
0: yeah a sense of a community as well, maybe. and then the Yes.
1: Other, uh, yeah. Very much so.
0: Okay. Um, let yeah. me see. We're, we're, we're going to round off now. Is there any sure. final messages that you would have for UCU students?
1: Oh, uh, messages. And, yeah. um, uh,
0: any or, tips for art or anything you say? Hey, well, I
1: do? would suggest one of the things um, that you have an opportunity to do at ECU mm-hmm. more than um, is normally taught in the classic Dutch university system is looking at the same question, but in the light of different, um, uh, uh, different faculties and different yeah. schools of thought. Yeah. So uh, what I find fascinating about psychology is not looking at it purely in terms of what do we know clinically, is mm-hmm. that even those insights change but looking at it it's so a very medical uh, uh, perspective we try to look at it in terms of how's it historically been looked at how has it been looked at uh, in terms of um, sociologically speaking yeah. uh, literature uh, and great art uh, how do things uh, say uh, some art works from Michelangelo certainly are not always showing, elated emotion. I recently saw a great uh, sculpture of Michelangelo of Moses that's in the Vatican. It's fantastic if you can see the seething rage uh, in that sculpture and thinking, okay, all these aspects all play a role and realizing, hey, this is something that's historic, but it also means that my perspective might be just one of, of many. Yeah. And that actually can bring uncertainty, but at the same time, it can also bring out a sense of uh, creativity of wanting to search out. Yeah. How has this been in the past and how might it be also seen in the future? Yeah. To see a continuity uh, uh, development.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time.
1: Well, thank you too. I appreciate uh, having this opportunity.
0: And I'll hopefully see you on campus again.
1: I hope so too. I really do.